My name is Shubh Saran, and this is a podcast series where I explore the life of musicians on and off stage. I'm making this series to ask what it means to be a musician today in the hopes that I can better understand what we do and why we choose to do it. What is difficult music? And why do musicians sometimes choose to purposefully write music using complicated and unfamiliar concepts? Complexity in music can mean so many different things. And over the past few years, I've found a great deal of inspiration from writing music that challenges me rhythmically. And I've enjoyed the complexity that comes with pushing the limits of what I know. When working on musical concepts that are difficult for me to execute, I find myself being more mindful of what I'm playing and how I'm playing it. Each note demands that much more of my attention, and everything I play feels a little bit more intentional. Challenging concepts can push us to try to write music that still sounds expressive while navigating something new and unfamiliar. Overcoming that challenge is exciting and rewarding, and I think that excitement also comes across in the performance of the music as well. But writing music that appears to be difficult is a double-edged sword. I've always tried to stay away from writing music just for the sake of complexity, oftentimes failing to do so. Creating music that doesn't first and foremost come from loving the way that it sounds, and only creating it to showcase how difficult it is, can feel more like an exercise than actually making authentic music. So how do we then make music that challenges us while staying true to the sounds we hear in our head? In May 2020, while writing the music for my new album, English, I was also spending a lot of time looking for new concepts and techniques to practice during lockdown. One of the things I had been working on was grouping notes in an unconventional number of beats. From a global musical perspective, we're all very used to hearing beats grouped in an even number, like two or four, something that sounds like this. But any variation off that grouping becomes immediately felt and noticeable. For example, grouping beats in an odd number like five instead. As I practiced and familiarized myself with a concept that I found challenging, the ideas I was working on began to permeate the songs I was writing. One of those ideas in a grouping of five notes stuck out to me more than the rest, and I captured it in a voice note. Recording the idea into my phone, I wasn't thinking about numbers or groupings, and I wasn't trying to write music that was difficult to perform. I was simply playing chords and arpeggios that spoke to me, notes that reflected how I was feeling at the time, in a rhythm that reflected concepts I had immersed myself in at the time. It was only later on, after I had come up with something substantial, that I began to figure out what I was actually playing. Today, we're going to be talking about complexity in music while breaking down my song, Ring Hunting. While recording the music for this album, Ring Hunting became one of the hardest songs to play for almost everyone in the band. It wasn't just because it's in an odd grouping or odd time signature, but it was because we wanted to find a way to make this rhythmic concept feel comfortable, 
and wanted to be as expressive as we possibly could within the constraints of something challenging. While recording drums for the album, Josh Bailey and Angelo Spampinato recorded over 12 takes of the song until they finally found the best way to navigate all of their parts. It's the hardest transition from section to section. There's like little dropouts and switches that make this kind of the most complicated one. The other ones have concepts that are maybe challenging, but this one to perform was the hardest one. This is probably the most challenging one for me to learn, but also in the studio, I think we probably did 12 or more takes because it's so intricate. The drum parts are pretty busy and we have to play really busy together. It took it took a lot of a lot of practicing and getting used to this new kind of rhythm in five. You're exploring every side of the five in this tune. And then it's And we had pretty like choreographed parts, so like who's doing the hi-hat six note thing here is really important and exactly where this kick and snare change is really important. So it was like all about the parts happening at the right times as they switch throughout the song. Aside from the challenge of an unfamiliar grouping of beats, the main repeating rhythm also begins on an unexpected part of the beat, adding yet another layer of complexity to the main groove. I, like when I first heard the song, I was not hearing one in the right place. So I was like, I, I think I listened to the first minute or two of the song hearing it wrong, and I was, I was like, ooh, this is interesting. The good, good sounds like one, ah, uh, one, ah, uh, and it's not. That's the rhythm that is the end of one, or the second eighth note. One, bot, got, got, uh, two, got, uh, uh, one, uh, uh. So, like, that's the hard stuff about that, is the, the rhythm implies a heavy downbeat, and it's not. I always like when pieces kind of transform over time like that, where you hear it a certain way at the beginning and then later on you, you hear it in a, different, in a new light. This is definitely one of those songs. So why then do we run the risk of sacrificing comfort and expressiveness to create a song using an odd time signature? To me, every rhythm and any variation of a rhythm has an inherent sound within it. Groupings of five sound different from groupings of four or groupings of seven. The discomfort that comes with the concept is a part of the sound of that concept. A song like Ring Hunting needed to feel slightly lopsided and jagged and wouldn't have conveyed the same feeling in any other rhythmic subdivision. For Julia Adamy, Christian Lee, and Brian Plautz, it's about adding emotional quality to complexity, making the song feel less like an exercise and sound more like honest music. There are moments where I feel a little intimidated or, or restricted or whatever, so I think it's just a matter of when I get something like that, it's just playing it a lot and feeling it the way you know, it's supposed to feel and I'm feeling comfortable with it. I definitely went through a phase where I practiced odd time signatures, but I would say that more important than that was just playing them with other people and trying to sound good and trying to feel good about what I was playing. And if I didn't feel good about what I was playing, then like doing the requisite research to be like, okay, like how can I shape this or how can I take advantage of the very particular emotional qualities associated with this time signature or, you know, groove qualities associated with this time signature to be able to not have this sound like just some kind of intellectual exercise. 
Yeah, I think the goal is to not be counting. Some things you might have to, but you know, in the beginning I might be counting, but in the end it's just supposed to feel like a phrase rather than one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, you know. <laughs> I think I'm trying to be as expressive as I would be. Hopefully I am, <laughs> I'm not sure. But in the end, like I am playing to the time signature. I think it just comes down to the composer and the musicians. Like if they aren't feeling the emotion, and the audience isn't. So like as a musician, if it's really complicated or something that I don't understand, then I have the responsibility of like making sure that I'm understanding the emotion or attributing some emotion of my own to it. The second half of the song changes in tone. From harmony that sounds lush and pretty, it goes on to sound more ominous, dark, and angry. The synth arpeggios move from feeling wide and lush into this closed, distorted sound, almost like the entire track has been suffocated. The song then slowly comes back to life again, with this guitar and saxophone moment, reintroducing one instrument layer after the next. I think my favorite part of the song is the section leading into the sax solo, kind of where you hear the full realization of the groove that the whole song's leading up to in that point. What me and Josh are playing, is, to me it sounds like a drummer with four arms, like playing all these different things. Just hearing how each like percussive element fits together is really, really super nice. Here's a voice note Josh sent over to me and Angelo a few weeks before the recording session, coming up with that percussion part. So I was thinking like trying to get a little percussion sounding layer on top of what happens at C, that whole build. Something like this. One, two, three, go, go, back, back, take, go, go. Um, let me know your thoughts. A lot of that, like, early funk stuff, Parliament, like Sly and the Family Stone, the bands come up with these grooves that are like, if you imagine, like, teeth on a gear, like the guitarist might be these three and the bassist might be the thumb and then like the snare might fit in and then it all makes up this like locked thing where everyone has a part that might be some 16th note or two 60 notes here and they're all in these little tiny windows between like the main part and it just sounds like this like engine it's like an engine room thing and it's just like perpetual you know The next section of the song is probably one of my favorite moments on the whole album. I asked Jared Yee to send me a rough tenor saxophone solo so that the drummers would have something to play along to while recording this section of the song. 
the track Jared sent me was supposed to be a placeholder, fully intended to be replaced in a studio with different microphones and professional gear. But after hearing it with Angelo and Josh reacting to the arc of Jared's solo in their playing, I knew we had something really, really special. I ended up keeping the rough track that Jared recorded in his apartment in the final version of the song. I kind of wanted to add some sort of lead tone on it with some delay. So I was like messing around with some sounds and I found this one. And uh, you said, oh, just do like a scratch solo kind of thing. And I was like, okay. I had the mindset to like eventually to do this in the studio, showing you like the sound that I had and see what you think. Yeah, you're like, oh man, this is, this is awesome. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, so we'll kind of like do that you know, in the studio. That part where Josh and Angelo play the 16th notes going into the other section, I was like, oh man, the sneaky guys are great. <laughs> After that, I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's totally cool. They crushed that. In a pop tune, if you could just hit a button and there was a snare riser going into every chorus, you'd be great. Like an EDM riser thing. I think that was the approach, to try and sound like an electronic dance snare build with two drummers all day. <laughs> that section of the solo is the section in the form where that five clave stops. You get the break from that driving rhythm. The bass part goes up a few octaves and is uh, in a high register, so it kind of feels like the bottom has dropped out from under you once you get to that section. So it felt like that section needed a breath of fresh air from all the craziness that comes before it. Once he's back in, instead of just unison stuff, I then start to interject some tambourine stuff. You can just do little bursts of tambourines. Instead of like ticka 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 ticka, just like doom doom If you're if you're just playing busy nonstop for five minutes, people get tired of it. But if you intersperse parts of scarcity within, it makes everything more effective. It holds people's attention, it makes things more interesting, it just is a better experience, I think for the people playing and the people listening. And finally, hidden underneath the big epicness of the whole solo section, I wanted to maximize the feeling of openness and lushness. I wrote this staggered part for four saxophone players, Gabby Rose, Alex Silver, Brian, and Jared, who played the melody between them, but one measure each at a time. After that, we had them improvise using the same note length, creating a random set of moving chords that all fit in the key of the song. The final result is this beautiful warping saxophone pad that sort of wraps around the whole track. It's kind of like using the saxophone section as um, electronic synth or something, not what you usually hear uh, with saxophone choir.
The title of the song is inspired by an old and very gruesome method of hunting tigers in South Asia, where hunters mounted on elephants would form a ring around their prey, trapping the tigers in the middle, making them easier to shoot. The most infamous of these hunts happened in 1911 in the Terai region of Nepal, during King George V's visit to the Indian subcontinent. Over the course of 10 days, King George's hunting trip led by the then Prime Minister of Nepal killed dozens of tigers, rhinos and leopards, animals that today are all critically endangered in the region. The long history of hunting tigers in South Asia became a metaphor to think about learned exploitation that perpetuates through generations without a clear beginning and no real ending. Ideas and practices that are passed down from people to people, one group of rulers to the next. Whether it was the Mughals or regional Indian royalty or the British imperialists or even poachers that exist today, each generation would inherit the exploitation of the past, carrying it forward to the next. This song and this album served as a way for me to question my own learned biases about what it means to be Indian. What are the things we pick up along the way and what do we then carry on to the next generation? Thinking about those things and questioning some of those things allowed me to undo some of that for myself. <laughs> 